Hello, thank you for joining us. We are here today to talk about wisdom, uh, primal wisdom comparing to dominant worldviews of today. And my name is Mary Tarsha, and I have here with me Dr. Darsha Narvaez. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. So to begin our talk today, um, what are some comparisons between those two, talking about primal wisdom and dominant views of today? Yeah, so... um, We've talked a little bit about uh, traditional wisdom and primal wisdom in prior uh, conversations. And now today, let's talk about what that looks like in actuality. So what kind of worldviews and action do we experience today? And some of the the differences are kind of rather notable uh, for primal wisdom, which is our ancestral wisdom, which is found all over the world in indigenous and First Nation societies. Humanity's uniqueness is about co-creating the world as imaginative animals. So the animal nature is accepted and, and honored, and the imagination is used to actually um, keep the energies of life going. Whereas in the Western worldview, uh, if we call it that, uh, the intellect and technologies are really what we think is unique about humanity. Now, what's um, dangerous, that, that those things are actually dangerous in the viewpoint of primal wisdom. Uh, so they have opposite perspectives here, that intellect can lead you, mislead you, words can mislead you, so you have to be very careful about them in the primal wisdom view, whereas that's honored as the best thing and in the Western worldview. So what's uh, going on then is we can see these viewpoints then lead to understandings of nature as um, separate from humans because we're better than that in the Western worldview and you want to escape from the natural world and control it and so on. And it's led us to these dire straits we're in now with the climate uh, crisis, the ecological devastation all over the world. Uh, biocultural um, uh, 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 demise, I suppose, and mm-hmm. species side, you know, that we're eliminating biodiversity all over the place, in part because we think we can do whatever we want. So that's the the Western worldview, is, or the dominant worldview, which is beyond the West now, uh, has taken over uh, how we think about humanity, and we're almost um, entranced and feverish about technologies and get uh, amuse ourselves to death with them, as uh, Postman pointed out many years ago. Uh, so the primal wisdom is, is more about being here and now and acting virtuously and, and awareness, with awareness of being connected to everything and how your actions and your thoughts and your words actually affect everything else. And it's more perceptive of multiple levels of reality. Whereas in the, in the Western worldview, because in a way we've undermined the right hemisphere development in early life, I think that's the part of the source of our problem, uh, mm-hmm. is we don't realize what we're missing because we never developed the capacity to perceive it. Hmm. That's very interesting. And, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about we have had um, uh, an increase in certain, you know, therapeutic techniques such as mindfulness and meditation and these other things that seem very new to us, right? Uh, practicing being in the moment, uh, these type of things. But really, as you were talking, it was becoming very clear to me that these are not new at all, right? That in a sense, we are just 
barely tapping into some of uh, this ancestral wisdom. Yes, yeah. good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So let's look at if we think about our psychology and our way of being, we can make comparisons uh, from the perspective of our ancestral context to today's issues. So uh, in the ancestral view, most of what we see in humans uh, as individuals and as groups is really pathological. So what does that mean? (laughs) Well, in our ancestral context, the normal way of developing is to uh, develop companionship social skills for getting along with others and being able to communicate easily and well with them and relate and enjoy other people deeply. The social pleasure, right, yes, that you write about pleasure. a lot but is also written that is so lacking, I think. Just right. So, you know, they enjoy being with each other. It's not a burden. <laughs> right. 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 And that's part of Mar- uh, Darwin's moral sense. Charles Darwin pointed out that morality is part of our evolutionary story, and one of the pieces of that is social pleasure, which we can see is diminishing in the USA. Absolutely. People don't want to be together. They'd rather be with their computer or watch their TV. iPhone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what, what happens then individually when this is missing, uh, social skills are really badly developed or they're used to manipulate other people. There's lots of discomfort being with others. Uh, And at the group level, we can see that there's uh, discomfort with people who are different from your experience. And so you have discomfort with that, and discomfort is bad. And so you escape it in some fashion or other, push them away or or scapegoat them as, you know, they're the Mm -hmm. problem, not my my discomfort in me, right? So you're externalizing, again, your discomfort to those Mm. others. Just displacing all that discomfort onto someone else or another group. Right, in part because you didn't develop in those early years the capacity to be, to be socially, relationally flexible and attuned. And so you have the very stiff brain-body system, and you can't do it, and so you blame them for your incapacities. But you're not aware that you're not capa- uh, capacious. <laughs> you're not aware of it because it's so common. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you end up with these ideas like, they are bad, or they are evil, or they are fill-in-the-blank, something right. negative. They're right. threatening me somehow, my sense of self. Mm-hmm. So it's them that are the problem, not my my inflexibility and <laughs> lack of awareness and inability to take perspectives and be open and, yeah, so on. Mm-hmm. So another one, uh, another feature of our ancestral context is that we have a sense of mutualism, of being connected and being uh, reciprocally engaged with others, empathic, and that includes the natural world, so animals, plants, rivers, and mountains. Whereas in the modern, uh, what, what the ancestral psychologist, let's say, <laughs> would say about modern uh, individuals is that they're rather oppositional and they don't have much empathy. So mm, that's pathological. Yes. And then in the group, uh, they could have in- extreme in-group loyalty. They have no sense that there's other groups that are equally as valuable or as, you know, uh, have as much right to the world as they do. And so they have a sense of being uh, maybe bunkered in to preserve their own in-group against others. 
which is pathological in this ancestral view. And what about also a natural curiosity? I wonder, too, how that plays a part uh, comparing with our ancestral psychology of that openness that you've talked about, uh, maybe that warm-heartedness to others who are different than you compared to, I don't even want to know, you know, this is this is it. I'm going to stick with my in-group compared to, huh, that's interesting. It's different. <laughs> yeah, and the, it's a hospitality, I would mm. call it that uh, open the door to others kind of thing, which is traditional all over the world in pre-industrial societies. So uh, it's not that strange to us. It is now because of the culture we're living in at the moment. Another feature is uh, the autonomy of the individual. In our ancestral context, nobody bosses anybody around, uh, Hmm. adults to kids, um, uh, adults to uh, animals. I mean, they have their own minds, their own spiritual guidance in inner compass, whatever that is. Whereas in in our modern culture, the individual has extreme is expected to be self-reliant in an extreme way and, and it's okay to have an attitude of leave me alone, leave me aloneism, right? <laughs> and focus on my freedom. I want my freedom, right? That's would be considered pathological, mm. psychopathological. And then uh, within groups, if you look at the group level, you might feel like you have some autonomy, but it's usually for limited things like buying stuff. You know, you get to pick which cereal you like out of a few hundred types. Mm. Um, but then individuals really are blamed for their misbehavior if they don't obey and conform to the group's ideas. Mm. Interesting. Doesn't just, happen in the in our ancestral context. That's so interesting. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, the... Um, typical teenager you would see on a sitcom, you know, of just leave me alone and shut the door and go in my room, right? And that's just depicted as kind of part of natural, part of the natural teenagehood, right? Yeah, and I think that probably comes, it's the reverberation of the babyhood where they were left alone uh, so much and Hmm. ignored and uh, mistreated in a way from what they expected as an evolved creature. And so then it's coming back in in adolescence as they go through another phase of self-development. Sure, they've learned that pattern of yeah. behavior, right? So, right. And there's more, too, right here. So, Yes, yeah, so um, what we think of in the ancestral context, your ideas are grounded in experience, so you don't come up with hypothetical things that are impossible, really, uh, and you are very flexibly able to respond to whatever new things happen. Whereas in our modern uh, individual psychologies, we see lots of obsessive compulsiveness, and we see dogmatism in group thinking that it's one way, my way or the highway, one way or you're you're evil, right, Mm -hmm. kind of thing Mm -hmm. we're talking about. They're also uh, the effectiveness in our ancestral context is to be cooperative and generous, whereas in the modern world, we think dominance is normal. Absolutely. Sure. Hierarchy. Sure. And hoarding. We want to hoard our stuff. We want to don't want to share. And so this uh, sense of uh, group dominance and only within your group do you share anything, these are things that are considered pathological, psychopathological. Mm-hmm. And within the modern context, that is supporting safety, um, right, when you're hoarding and you're dominating others, right? Well, yeah, if you, if you were fed uh, your, as a baby on schedule, you learned that there's not enough. 
you always feel anxious about not about getting what you needed because it was so partialed out to you or you were punished and so you don't feel safe generally and you don't feel like there's enough in the world whereas in the ancestral context there's enough for everybody mm. and people are relaxed about getting what they need yes. and we have uh, sustainability issues in the ancestral context all things are considered sacred and so you are concerned about the sustainability of all Whereas in the modern uh, world, the individual really is kind of an empty self, a hungry ghost, as the Asian cultures would use the term. Nothing is considered sacred. Uh, it's all about getting, 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 filling that hole inside. And then the in-group just takes this to another level, exploiting natural resources for their own gains, us against them. And also selected sacredness, right? Um, not seeing things, many things as sacred, but just whatever they choose, right? Right. So it can be just uh, you have to have this color of skin or you're, not, you're, you're less valuable. You're not as sacred or this gender or, you know, that kind of thing. There's be live this place or you're, you know, less valuable. So, yeah, a lot of strange uh, territoriality that happens, which is the old part of the brain uh, taking over the so-called reptilian, right? Mm-hmm. And then pleasure is, is considered social enjoyment, enjoyment in, in the ancestral context. You want to be with people all the time virtually. And anthropologists report how they couldn't, the, the people they were studying couldn't believe they ever wanted to be alone. So they'd just show <laughs> up in the middle, you know, 3 a.m. when they got out of bed and they came in and told them stories, you know. And they couldn't believe it <laughs> even if they tried to, you know, wire shut their door or whatever, wherever they were. These people would come in because they couldn't conceive that anybody would want to be alone. Want to be alone. Isn't that interesting? But now our pleasures are about self-consuming things, really. That's what we train babies to do. Uh, Here's your teddy bear. Don't sleep with me. Sleep with your teddy bear, okay? Then you want more stuff to feel you safe. Or here's an iPhone. Or here's food if you're crying. Here, have a sucker. Right? So it's all misdeveloped sense of, of being a sense of pleasure in the world. And um, then at the group level, the the neurotic control of particular behaviors, right? So often this is sexuality, other body functions that are uh, deemed um, wrong, uh, puritanically, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, evil somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We talked about the self and how in the ancestral context you have a small ego but a large self, a communal self. Whereas nowadays, because of the undermining of baby and young child care, you have to develop a big ego to survive. You Mm. have to have a protective barrier against others. So you enhance yourself, you aggrandize yourself, or you diminish yourself just to feel safe. And then the group, at the group level, the group gets a big ego thinking they're better than everyone else, which is part of this um, more group level psychopathology. And then there's also a difference in um, development in terms of the brain, right? So even within that ancestral context, it's focused on the whole brain. And I know your work, you talk a lot about this too, and Alan Shore's amazing job, right, focusing on the importance of developing the right hemisphere. And our culture, unfortunately, is so focused on developing the left hemisphere within those first years, and that, that right hemisphere is what is developing more rapidly during those those first few it's years. Scheduled to develop, to scheduled develop then, to develop, right? And so it needs, that. it expects the uh, social support and experiences that develop it best, which mm-hmm. is lots of touch and care and responsiveness and play, 
and those are the things we don't provide babies and children very much anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's underdeveloped uh, right hemisphere systems uh, in those early years that then lead to all sorts of psychopathologies as well at the individual and group level. Mm. So then as an, an adult or an, um, a teenager, you're able to memorize things really well, but unfortunately don't have the capacity to maybe emotionally self-regulate right, right. as well as you could. Yeah, or imagine your connection to the the trees or, you know, <laughs> awareness of what their, uh, the birds are communicating in the, in the in the forest or something. So there's mm-hmm. all sorts of things that are missing. So uh, one of the things that is really critical and primary to primal wisdom is this orientation to nature. In the West, in the dominant view that's kind of taken over the world now for the last few hundred years, nature is uh, often considered malevolent. You know, it's out to get us. We got to control it or else it's going to get us, you know. And oh, there's there's an ant. Bang, you kill it, Mm -hmm. right? Or whatever you see, you kill. Because Mm -hmm. it's out to get me. You know, the bear, the wolf, the whatever is there. And and it's this kind of extermination complex that humans have. It's only for us, this world, you know, Mm -hmm. and we're supposed to do that. That's, you know, we're told. And so the story is, that's what it is. Where um, in the ancestral context, the view is nature's benevolent. Nature is giving. Nature provides everything you need to live. Why would you do anything to harm it, right? Mm-hmm. You're harming your own self because you're all connected anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even more so as you've written in other places um, about uh, primal wisdom is that there is this abundance found within nature. So not only is it gift giving and going to give to you, but there is an abundance within that giving that you receive yes. and give back. That's right. I think what, the way we raise our young children, our babies, is we build in a sense of scarcity. Yes. They don't get enough touch. They don't get enough breast milk. They don't get enough uh, attention, face-to-face kind of pleasurable attention or enough play. And so they feel it's built in. There's not enough. And so that's where their hoarding then becomes kind of normal to hoard things and to hang on to things because you didn't ever feel safe in the world mm-hmm. just to be. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I think it goes back to, uh, to a lot of trust, right? Developing trust within those uh, first few years through proper care rather than under care. And then your view of the world and of others and of yourself is that of trust. You trust your own biology, you listen to your body, you respond to yourself, you respond to others, and then you see the world as good and trustworthy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had lots of experiences to show you that that's the way it is, mm-hmm. the right mm-hmm. times. Then um, the viewpoint in the ancestral context is that uh, nature's full of living agents, that everything is alive, everything is sentient, whereas today we we have this attitude that nature is really empty, you know, we can manipulate it, it doesn't matter, you don't have to feel guilty chopping down a forest or you know, polluting a river because it's just sort of not important and somebody can clean it up later or replace it, build, the, you know, plant a bunch of little trees. That's not really the equivalent of a forest. Forest is, is an entity, but people have forgotten all this knowledge and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Another one is... Uh, oh, yes, and an extreme example of that also is that nature is devoid of people. So we see this even in, in accounts unfortunately, within a colonialism of going to different parts of the world and saying this is an empty wasteland, an empty land, we're going to come and colonize it. And unfortunately, there were many people who have been living there for 
for hundreds and thousands of years, right? So Yes, and not living the way the Europeans yes. thought they should with plowed fields and, and cut down forests. And so they thought, oh, there's nothing here. It's a wasteland. Yeah. It's a wasteland. The whole history about that. <laughs> right, yes. Another one is uh, that we view, that we consider now often or just assume that human nature is really evil. Human nature is aggressive and selfish, and that's the way it is. And you've got to have laws. This is Hobbes. You've got to have laws and the, the structures of the government to control these evil people. Mm-hmm. And right? babies are evil. Then babies, babies are evil. Are evil. Oh, it starts right. there. Yes. Demanding an evil, right? <laughs> yeah. Whereas the ancestral view is that humans are malleable. Human nature is malleable. And so it matters how you care for people. They had a sense of the epigenetics of how you yes. become a person, a human being. And you have to honor the needs. And then you develop into a good human being. Another one today is that individuals are separate from one another. You can in, uh, isolate them and treat them as individuals, whereas this is completely crazy. In the ancestral view, you're always connected. You're <laughs> always in the web of life. Everything you do is is reverberating on that web, you know, on mm-hmm. every thread, that every action and thought you have. Right. And I know you've talked about in other shows, too, how really that interconnectedness creates another culture, you know, between two people, that kind of mindset, which is very different from me and my world and my culture. And that's what's important rather than let's create a new culture together. Right. right. So every moment you have a new uh, way of being creative. So in the ancestral view, you're co-creating right now with that person, telling stories, making them laugh, rolling on the ground, laughing, uh, and all that is a new culture, whereas now we think we think that, um, you know, it's kind of ping pong balls between us. Mm-hmm. And there are a few more too, right? That's yeah, a- so uh, let me just say a couple more. Uh, relationships aren't really that important. They're expendable in the modern world because we move around and we we have work relationships, and then we move and get it, uh, develop other work relationships. We have the extended family that lives on the other side of the world, and, and so we don't think about relationships being that important. So this is the individualism of the modern world, mm-hmm. whereas in our ancestral context, of course, relationships are fundamental. Who you are is uh, integrated with your relationships. Mm-hmm. And we also see that in terms of individualism, right? So there's individualism without collectivism, and that's what we're familiar with rather than individualism with collectivism. So both together, my autonomy and the group are important together. That's right. So you can get up and walk around for several days on your own if you want. It's fine. Nobody will complain. But then when you're with a group, you're with a group and you're part of that community. Mm. So... Mm-hmm. Yes, and you know there are a few other differences too, and one of those is taking a very literal and material meaning of of the world um, versus that would be what we're um, comfortable with, and this is the dominant worldview that we're in versus the metaphorical or spiritual meaning. So being able, again, referring back to that right hemisphere thinking, um, to think beyond just the literal and material. Yeah, and that's, again, the right hemisphere capacities that we undermine in our culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another piece of that, which is also right hemisphere related, is that we have this sense today that we have to suffer now, but relief will come. The next life will come. Hmm. The, you know, next year we'll have the technology to fix everything. So there's this sense of not living now, not living here and now in a way that's um, virtuous and, and, uh, where we can flourish. Whereas meaningful, our, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in the 
uh, in the past in our ancestral viewpoint. We're in eternity now. This hmm. is it. This. How are you living right now? This is how you are as a being. Are you in the mindset, in the w- wise way of being? Mm-hmm. Finally, uh, the uh, ancestral, well, the common viewpoint now is, oh, there's not much we can do about human human nature, human culture. It's just the way it is. And, you know, progress is, we're all have uh, technological progress is the way we have to be. It's the best way. All that, the past and other ways of being are <gasps> dangerous, scary, mm. bad. But uh, that's not the viewpoint and not the experience of many uh, sustainable societies where they live for tens of thousands of years in sustainable, happy ways. Uh, and uh, we have to re- remember then that human culture is malleable. We don't have to be the way we are now. It is a uh, fluke, really, of the last few hundred years to be so um, live in a way that's so devastating to our earth. Uh, we need to remember now to get back to primal wisdom, which is our sense of connectedness and regrow our our sense of well-being in community. Mm. Well, that's such a positive note to end on as we, we wrap up um, this show about wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to being with you next time. <laughs>